All right, we've been in the Gospel of Luke now for, well, a long time, right? (laughs) But it's been great. And so I thought it might be neat today to look on a map to see where Jesus has been walking from and where he's walking to in parts of the Gospel of Luke. So you can kind of get a visualization of some of these sermons we've been hearing about. By the way, if you're listening to this message on audio and you weren't with us on Sunday, um, you really need to go back to the website and download a PowerPoint presentation. I'm going to be using a lot of maps, and this particular one probably is not going to work that great with like an iPod and earbuds without a computer screen in front of you. So I was thinking, let's track Jesus in the Gospel of Luke. But then it occurred to me, many Christians, even after studying their Bible for years, don't really know the lay of the land. They don't know the travel routes, the main ones, in the land of Israel. So I thought, man, we need to back up a little bit, get that down first, and then end up at the Gospel of Luke. So we've got three goals today. We're going to learn the travel routes of Israel, goal number one. Number two, we're going to answer the question, so what? Okay, I know where this road is now. And we'll answer question number two by looking at some Old Testament stories. So we can see, hey, this helps. I understand more of what God wants me to know in this lesson about this Old Testament character because I can visualize where he or she are traveling. And then third, we'll go to the Gospel of Luke and see where Jesus has been in some of these sermons we've heard in the, in the spring, the past few months. Uh, Looking at the land of Israel, hopefully you'll tell this by the end of my message, is one of the funnest things in the world to me, both being there uh, physically or looking at it in pictures and photographs. So I want to try to show you that this thing really is fun and hopefully won't have the feel of a high school or a college class this morning. So we're going to do that by looking at the board game of Monopoly. This is the board of Monopoly. Now, Raise your hand quick. Have you ever in your life played Monopoly? All right, that's pretty much 99% of everyone in here. So here's that game. You know it well. Here's the point I want you to get. You cannot play this game until you understand the playing board. That means you've got to understand something. You don't have to be an expert, but something about each one of these squares what they are in and of themselves, focused on that square, say it's early in the game and should I buy this one square or not, and its value in relation to other squares. Okay, I've got to think toward the end of the game. Do I want to start doing some kind of collection or set or not? Every time you land on a square, you've got to decide, do I want a relationship with this square, which means buy it? Do I want to own it? Or... I could care less about this square. I hate it that I landed on this. I wish I could fast forward time. We could move around the players and it gets back to me because all I care about is getting around the corner to the next side of the board. So let's look at a couple examples on Monopoly. Here's an example of a square. Now, I'll just speak from personal experience here. I hate this square. (laughs) I don't like railroads. I don't like utilities. I only like real estate. That's the only thing that matters to me. But some people would land on this and want to buy it. Let's look at another square. If you know Monopoly, you'll know this is the first set of properties you run across after Go. Now, I'm going to use the word cheap for this, so maybe you can get a little preview as to how I think about these squares. 
because they didn't use the word inexpensive or great value or something like that. To me, I don't want to land on these. Let's go around the board a little bit more, maybe a lot. That's what we're talking about now. <laughs> this is the kind of stuff I love, the green set. Man, I'm telling you, if you've got a green property and you're playing with me, I'll slip you real cash under the board if you'll <laughs> trade with me. Because I want to collect these things. And one more, um, park, place, and boardwalk. So even if you only played once or twice, you've got some emotions going now that you see these. It's a love-hate thing, right? Either I love this, I want it, I hope I land on it and can buy it. Or you say, I hate this thing. It's too expensive to develop. I'm going to pour all my money into this. And people may or may not land on it. Or, thinking of last week's sermon, maybe you think, I don't want to be like the rich young ruler and be known in our you know, little playing circle here as the rich guy or the rich gal. So for whatever reason, people have a love-hate relationship with these last couple properties. All right. So let's transition now. Let's look at the playing board of Israel, not the playing board of Monopoly. I want to introduce you to three regions in Israel. I mean, there are more than these three, but these are three main ones that Jesus ministered in. The first one we're going to call the Judean wilderness. And what we'll see are actual photographs of the Judean wilderness. So let me try to describe this for you. It's very barren. You're not going to see much green in these slides. You'll see like seven or eight of them. You're not going to see very many people, not very many buildings or habitations or cities or villages. The best way for me to describe the Judean wilderness is it's folds in the earth, like wrinkles, folds in the earth. Um, this means valleys, ravines, gorges. And, of course, they don't go nicely north, south, east, west, like a lot of the roads in Albuquerque. They're all over the place. It's like a big maze. In fact, it's the perfect place to hide out. And this is what David does, the guy that will become king, when he wants to hide out from the first king of Israel, Saul. David takes his group of men and he goes into this region. And it's extremely hard to find him. This is also the area where Jesus goes, back in Luke, I want to say chapter 4, for the first temptation from the devil. Jesus is in this area probably very hungry, maybe starving, very tired. And the devil says, of course, there are rocks all over the place, so it's very natural to say this. The devil says, take one of these rocks. You could make it into great, fresh, wonderful-smelling, great-tasting bread. Now, there are a lot of things wrapped up in that temptation, but one of them is certainly that the devil is saying, you're incarnate, you're in a human body, but you can say no to suffering. You can turn your back and walk away from pain. And you can do it right now. And Jesus says no. All right, next section. We're going to look at the farmland. The second section is going to be the land around the Sea of Galilee. A lot of this is rich farmland. You're going to see a completely different picture now. Why? Better soil, a little more rain, although overall Israel doesn't get that much rain to begin with. More streams, more chances for irrigation. So you're going to see farmland up around the area of Galilee in the north. 
This is actually where Jesus spent most of his time in ministry, not in the city of Jerusalem, up in the various villages around Galilee. And because it's an agricultural area, what you will see in the Gospel of Luke, especially the first half, are word pictures that key into this kind of life. Let me give you a few examples. He's calling the disciples. They're on the Sea of Galilee. What does Jesus say? I want you to become fishers of men. Perfect place to give that analogy. Or here's another one. We saw this this spring in the Gospel of Luke. There's a sower. Maybe that was last fall. There's a sower and there are seeds. And there are different kinds of earth. Man, perfect spot to talk about that. Or he says to his disciples, I'm going to send you out and you're going to feel like sheep among wolves. Perfect spot to talk about that. Or the harvest is plentiful. Lots of great crops. And the laborers, the workers, there's hardly any of them there. Or he looks at fruit in the Gospel of Luke and he says, what comes out of our hearts and ends up in our actions, that's just like fruit on a tree. Bad trees don't produce good fruit. Good trees don't produce bad fruit. Wow, what a great setting to talk about that kind of thing. One more area Jesus ministers in, and that is in the city, in Jerusalem especially. And so there is city life as well. What is involved in city life? Here's the picture of the temple back in his time. Well, there is business, the exchange of money, commerce, the marketplace. There are politicians, there's government, a military presence. There's the very richest of the rich and the poorest of the poor. And you know what? In the Gospels, Jesus interacts with all of the above. So that's our third and final place in the land of Israel. Let's move toward our map work now and look at a satellite view of the playing board of Israel. Now the black in this slide is going to be water. So some of this you know already, but let me kind of back up and make it real basic. The water that's in the upper left part of the slide is the Mediterranean Sea, the same sea that Greece and Italy uh, sit on. The land to the left is Egypt, and that green triangle, maybe better to word it as a fan, is the Nile as it's emptying out into the Mediterranean. The Nile flows from south to north, so opposite of the Mississippi. But like the Mississippi, when it hits the ocean, in this case the sea, it hits low land and it fans out in what's called a delta region. And so if there's water there, there's going to be green. You can also see where the Nile is, not that we can see the Nile in this photo, but we can see the green on both sides of the Nile. Just like if you're in an airplane flying into Albuquerque, um, if it's not winter, you can see the Rio Grande Valley area and the rest is what? Pretty much dead. Just brown or yellow or tan or some of those colors. The triangle in the middle is the Sinai Peninsula where the Israelites wandered for 40 years. Israel is up above that. In fact, uh, hopefully you can see the Dead Sea, which is a black little finger that's about two-thirds of the way up on the map and about two-thirds of the way over from left to right. Can you raise your hand one more time and just tell me, can you see where the Dead Sea is? So at least three-fourths of you have got that. We'll get closer so you can see that better in a minute. In fact, let's do that right now. Let's look at the playing board of just Israel. 
So again, water's black. There's the Dead Sea on the bottom. All around the Dead Sea, all you see is off-white or tan or real light yellow. That's because that's the Judean wilderness area, especially to the left of the Dead Sea, to the west. Those are the pictures we saw. You can visualize that. The Sea of Galilee is to the north. A little hard to make out. Why? Because it's got dark green around it. Because that's much better watered and irrigated. And in between the two, can't really see it, but in between the two is a river that flows from Galilee, dumps into the Dead Sea, and that river is called the, the Jordan. Yes. So there's Israel right there. We're going to learn four roads that go through Israel. And then... Our goal number one is done. Dig into the Old Testament to see what we can do with that. The first of those is called the Coastal Highway. Like its name says, it runs along the coast. And think of this as maybe a state road. Now, roads weren't paved in that time and day. They were dirt roads. But think of it like it got a lot of use, like a state highway. The first two roads we'll look at are more like highways. The second two are more like county roads, not used quite as much. So that's the first one. second one is called the King's Highway. King's Highway also goes north-south, but it's along the top of a mountain ridge. And the ridge runs north-south. So if you know anything about a string of mountains like that, you don't want to cross them perpendicular. That's horrible. You're going way up and you're going way down, like climbing up the La Luce Trail, just doing switchbacks the whole time. Very hard. But if you're on the top and doing the Crest Trail... It's still some up and down, but it's nothing like going up and down La Luz. So King's Highway is along the top of a mountain ridge north-south. By the way, the Israelites, when they leave Egypt and they're trying to enter Israel, their original thought was to do so along that coastal route that we saw. But God knew they would run into a people group called the Philistines and turn back. So they end up wandering in the wilderness kind of really fast-forwarding through the story here. But at the end of that, they come up the King's Highway. And we actually have that term, King's Highway, in the book of Numbers. So they come up east of the Dead Sea. Some people call this the backdoor approach to Canaan from Egypt. After they hit the top of the Dead Sea, you can tell they've got to get off the King's Highway, go west, cross the Jordan River, and the first city they attack and conquer under Joshua is named Jericho. So, on to road number three. The third route we're going to call the Way of the Patriarchs. doesn't have that name today, but it's a great name for for, um, looking at this. This is smack dab in the middle of Israel. It also goes along a north-south mountain range. We might call them big hills instead of mountains, but they call them mountains. And it's right in the middle of Israel. Why is it called the Way of the Patriarchs? Well, the patriarchs traveled up and down it. These are the big guys in Genesis, right? Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and then his sons like Joseph. Why are they traveling up and down? They're nomadic. That means they live in tents. They don't have permanent dwelling because they're taking care of livestock. It means mostly sheep and goats. So still, why move around with sheep and goats? Well, answer is Israel doesn't get a lot of rainfall. And so they can exhaust one area The livestock eats up all the grass and the weeds, and they've got to move to another one. So they move up or down, finding pasture land, and that's why we call it the way of the patriarchs. 
There's a fourth and final route, and that's called the Way of the Jordan. This goes along the Jordan River, and we'll see this come to play more when we end up with the Gospel of Luke. But as long as a river is not set in a big gorge or chasm, there are gentle slopes coming down, you've got relatively flat territory to move north and south, and that's the case with the Jordan. So there are the four routes. One more piece of map work, and that is five cities along the way of the patriarchs. I'm going to start from the north and go south. The first one is called Shechem. Next is Bethel. Then Jerusalem, the capital city. Then Mamre. Another town that you would pronounce as Hebron, but I might say Hebron, is right next to Mamre. So sometimes people write about Mamre-Hebron or Maybe it's just Hebron, or maybe it's just Mamre. And then Beersheba, way in the south, more in the desert. Now, uh, there are dozens and dozens of cities and villages, even in biblical Israel. So I wanted, years ago, to memorize just these five, because they're kind of the core, the center, middle of the land. So I was teaching seminary in Virginia, and I asked my students, can you give me a memory aid for remembering these five cities? So they gave me a whole bunch of different ones. I won't share all of them with you. I'll share one. Uh, this lady came up with this great memory aid. And here's the memory aid. She's starting at the north, going south. Show Beth, Jesus makes it better. Now, I don't have to put that on an index card and look at it weekly or monthly or even yearly. Ever since she said that, I remembered it. Show you've got the SH in Shechem. Beth, Bethel, really close. Jesus, Jerusalem, those two go together. Makes it better has the M and the B, but you know, you can't have everything. So, She's got not only the first letters, but two or three of these really key into the city. Um, I'll tell you quick, I also had a male student that came up with a different memory aid that I can't even remember. But if you look at that last city, we would pronounce that Beersheba, probably. And so he focused his memory aid on beer. I can't remember what he said. Something about brewing beer or something. But I thought, you know, the girls sounds a lot more godly and Christian and pious. So, (laughs) Shobeth, Jesus makes it better. Those are our five cities on the way, the patriarchs. So we're done with the playing board. Let's look at the story of Abraham. If you've got a Bible, open up to Genesis 13. Although most of what we'll do, I'll put verses up on the screens. So this is more if you want to kind of skim read a little bit before and after the verses that I highlight. Here's the context for Genesis 13. Abraham has a nephew. His name is Lot, L-O-T. They're on the way, the patriarchs, they're traveling up and down. Their livestock, their herds, have grown immensely. So much so that both these guys have shepherds that work under them. And the flocks have grown so much that they really can't be sustained in any one area. Abraham, Lot, the shepherds, and all the sheep and goats. So conflict arises, tension arises between the shepherds especially. Here's what Abraham says in Genesis 13, verse 9. Abraham says this, Please separate from me. If to the left, then I'll go to the right. If to the right, then I'll go to the left. Now, they're at Bethel. They're up on a mountain range. And they can see a pretty good amount. Now, let me give you a little background to what I think is happening here. In ancient Israel, people were oriented toward the east. In fact, the whole ancient Near East was oriented that way. 
we are oriented toward the north. So one way of saying go north was to say go left. Again, you're oriented toward the east. I know this is very foreign to us, but just think, if you're facing the east and someone says go left, you're going to go north. Another way of saying go south was go left. Another way of saying go west was to say go backwards or go behind yourself. So what's happening is Abraham is not saying you pick a direction, Lot. Any direction. We've got to put some space between us. You pick a direction. You start walking in that direction, I'll go 180 degrees opposite direction. That's not what's happening. Abraham is assuming Lot will want to stay in the way of the patriarchs. And he's saying, if you want to go north, I'll go south. If you want to go south, I'll go north. So, what is it that Lot does? Let's look at verses 10 and 11. Lot lifted up his eyes, and he looked over the, to the Jordan Valley. We've put that in a little yellow north-south marker there just to remind you where the Jordan Valley is. Apparently, two to 3,000 years ago, it was much more green and lush than it is today. But Lot is up on a mountain, and he's looking at the Jordan Valley. Abraham is saying, go north-south. Why would Abraham say that? Because God commanded them to go to Canaan. So Abraham's assuming that was me and my extended family. We all need to honor God's word, his command, and stay solidly within the land of Canaan. But instead of looking north or south, Lot looks east. And what's attracting his gaze is a lot of green stuff because he's thinking, got livestock, they need to eat and drink, they'll grow even bigger, I'll become real rich. So, like we see, Lot looks at this. What happens next? Still in verses 10 and 11. He journeys eastward and he moves his tents up as far as Sodom. So he goes to the east and probably to the south. We're not sure where Sodom is. Some people think it's been taken over by the Dead Sea. Um, but it doesn't, doesn't exist anymore. So there's two things I think are wrong with what Lot is doing. And understanding the playing board helps us to see this. One, he's leaving Canaan. Now, is he technically going outside the borders of Canaan or the land of Israel? We don't know. We're not sure. But if he's not outside the borders of the land of Canaan, as understood by Abraham, he's standing like right on the border. You know, two more steps over and he's off. So it's clear, I think, to an Israelite reader and to you and I, if we've got a map in front of us, that Lot doesn't care about being in Canaan. He moves away from Abraham in the way of the patriarchs. Second thing that's wrong is that he moves towards Sodom. If you read later in chapter 13, it's in verse, verse 13 of chapter 13. We've got this statement about how wicked Sodom was. I think this verse tells us this was common knowledge. Everyone knew about the wickedness of Sodom. So Lot is moving his tents up real close. Was it 50 feet outside the city walls or a half mile? We don't know kind of doesn't matter. Lot's thinking, I can get rich. I can go into the city for supplies, but not have to live there. And uh, maybe technically in the boundary of what God told me to do, so everything's cool. Well, guess what? Two chapters later in Genesis, instead of those words, as far as we have a short one word that's very significant in meaning, Lot is living in, I-N, 
the city of Sodom. And bad stuff happens because of that. So when an Israelite hears this story or heard this story two to 3,000 years ago, they would have thought of all of these things and thought less of Lot. He's a model not to follow because of what's driving him and what's not driving him. What's not driving him is what God has said. Next story in the Old Testament is the story of Jacob. So you may want to turn up to Genesis 31, 33, around that area. Although, again, rather you actually be looking at the screens. So what's the background to the story of Jacob that we'll look at in a minute? Well, we're a little bit later in that story. Jacob, if you remember, had conflict with his brother Esau when they were young or younger. So his mom says, I'm afraid Esau's going to kill you. You need to get out of here. Go to my relatives way north, north from this slide even. Jacob is there for 20 years. And then God tells him in chapter 31, return to the land of Canaan. Go back to your relatives. Return to your father. So let's review our five cities. Here they are. I'll do it one more time from north to south. Shechem, Bethel, Jerusalem, Mamre, Beersheba. Whereas our other story in Genesis 13, they started in Bethel. This one is going to end up at Shechem. So Genesis 31, we read, Jacob arose to go to the land of Canaan to his father Isaac. So you can tell he's moving along the king's highway, that north-south mountain range, to the east of the Jordan River. Now, his brother Esau somehow gets word that Jacob's coming down. So his brother is living just east of the Dead Sea, and his brother starts traveling north, those are the white arrows, to meet up with Jacob. By the way, quick aside here, if Esau has moved to the east of the Dead Sea, we'll see in a minute, the father is still living and is on the way of the patriarchs, on the other side of the Dead Sea. So do you get a sense that Esau wants independence? He doesn't care about his family, just wants to get away? I mean, that is not a short walk from where we'll learn the father is around one end of the Dead Sea or the other to get to where these white arrows start, where Esau is living. But Esau moves north to meet his brother Jacob. We read about how the two brothers meet. Esau doesn't kill Jacob. They seem to have a good reunion. They've been separated for 20 years, and we're up to Genesis 33. Here's where the father is. The father is at Mamre, one of our five cities. So see how far away that is from the east part of the Dead Sea. All right, so what does Jacob need to do if he wants to see his father and obey God's command? Well, Jacob needs to cross the Jordan River, go to Shechem, which is indeed what he does, and then travel south. It's that simple. So indeed... Jacob comes to Shechem. Here's where the story takes a turn for the worse. In verse 18, you can see it up on the screen, when he gets to the city of Shechem, he buys a piece of land. Now, does that, do you buy land when you're moving through someplace and staying overnight? No, he's setting up permanent residence in Shechem. And he's not doing what God told him to do, which was return not just to Canaan, okay, he's accomplished that, but to your father. In fact, two things happen that finally get Jacob 
going south again. One is a very ugly incident that happens in Shechem that you can read about on your own. And the second is God audibly, verbally telling Jacob, go south, get going. My own paraphrase, but he does tell him, move back south. So knowing the playing board of Israel, what's our application here? Jacob still in large part is a deceiver. He's not really the godly father, husband, leader that he'll become to some extent later in the book of Genesis. He's not doing what God commanded him to do, or maybe he's doing half of it. Coming back to Canaan, doesn't seem to care about his father at all. Third story in the Old Testament, then we'll go to the Gospel of Luke, is Jonah. You don't really have to turn there. I'm going to kind of summarize the story for you. Jonah starts in a city that is not one of our five cities. So let's see where that city is in relation to the way the patriarchs. Book of Jonah starts in the city of Joppa which is a coastal city. It is a port city. Ships come in and out, like you know, because all of you know the story of Jonah. So here's what we read in the first few verses. Um, Here's what God says. Jonah, arise and go to Nineveh. But Jonah went down. He's probably up in elevation on the way to the patriarchs. He went down in elevation to Joppa. In verse 3, we read this. So he went down to Joppa and found a ship which was going to Tarshish. Now, we don't know exactly where Tarshish is. Some people think it's Spain. But here's the point. It doesn't matter. Here's the point. And I think you've picked up on this already. God is telling Jonah to go to Nineveh. Nineveh is a land trip to the east and a little bit north. So what does Jonah do? And any Israelite hearing this story, the first few verses of Jonah, this is what they're thinking. I mean, in a huge way, in the first few verses, they're seeing disobedience. For us, it kind of gradually grows that Jonah's being disobedient. They're thinking, land trip to the east, what does Jonah do? Takes a sea trip, and it has to be in one direction, west. There's no other direction you can go from Joppa. And that's in the first three verses of the book. Now, If Jonah's heart is not right with God in the first three verses, does it end up being right with God? Be careful before you nod your head, you know, a little yes or no. Maybe go home and read the end of chapter four to see if he really has a change of heart and is sensitive to God's voice and God's ways and his words and his wisdom by the time you reach the end of that book. But the playing board helps us immensely to see where he starts out at. All right. We're now ready for the story of Jesus. So we're going to look at some of the stories that we've heard in Ryan's sermon series on Luke, just a few of them, kind of tie them together, connect some dots geographically. But before we do that, we're going to look at the five cities one more time. I'm not going to go through them again, but here they are. We're going to add one more city to the north of these five, and that city is called Samaria. It's on the way to the patriarchs between Galilee and Jerusalem. Now, you'll recall if you were here, if you've attended for a year or so, that we've had a sermon on the Good Samaritan. So let me do a brief review of who the Samaritans were. They lived in Samaria. It makes sense, right? Here's how they evolved as a people group. When the Babylonians came into Israel, think time of Daniel, they exile out Israelites, actually in three different waves but they leave a handful of Israelites left. 
those Israelites end up intermarrying with pagan people groups. Not only intermarrying, but adopting their religious practices. So much so that when Israelites, we now call them Jews after the time of the exile, come back into the land, instead of meeting their uh, brothers in terms of blood and faith, they've got what became to be known as half-breeds, or they face what they came to call half-breeds. People that had not abandoned all the laws of Moses, but some of them, and started picking and choosing. And to a devout Jewish person in the days of Jesus, this was worse than being a pagan. So that's what the Samaritans were all about. Let's see how this affected travel on the playing board that is traveled between Galilee and Jerusalem. Let's say that you were uh, in Jerusalem wanting to go north to Galilee. The quickest way would be due north. Jerusalem is on the way of the patriarchs. So just start heading north. Closest distance between two points, straight line. However, that would take you through one of the bad sections of Israel, Samaria. And so devout Jews would instead go east to Jericho, which is not a 10-minute walk, several hours, hot sun. And are you getting any closer to Galilee by doing that? No, of course not. Then at Jericho, head north along the way of the Jordan, hit the Sea of Galilee, then usually take a turn west to get to someplace like Nazareth. So let's see if Jesus did that. Here we're finally in Luke. So here's where we're going to wrap up our third goal. In Luke, we're in the other direction. Jesus starts in Galilee. He's going to end in Jerusalem. Luke chapters 4 through 8, Jesus is in the Galilee area. Remember all those pictures? He's giving those um, analogies with agriculture. And then in Luke 9, we read the first verse where it says that Jesus is set on beginning a trip to Jerusalem. Chapters 9 through 19, the heart of the Gospel of Luke is this long trip that Jesus takes that eventually ends up in Jerusalem. In fact, along that route, we hit Luke 17, a sermon we had a few months ago, where he cleansed the ten lepers, which takes place just north of Samaria. So this is my imagination at work here, so this may or may not have happened. This is what I like to think. Jesus is with his disciples in Galilee up through Luke chapter 8. And he's been ministering in lots of little villages. So he says to the guys, tomorrow morning we're packing our bags, we're, we're leaving the Galilee area. Morning comes and Jesus starts out and at some point somebody, let's say Peter because we can always pick on Peter. Um, somebody notices, wait a minute, Jesus is, is walking on a little footpath but that footpath ends up at the way the patriarchs, which ends up at Samaria. So maybe Peter says, uh, Jesus, Rabbi, teacher, are you sure you want to go that way? Which, of course, knowing what we know is probably a stupid question because we could, could we imagine Jesus saying, oh, you're right, I made a mistake, I forgot. No, of course not. <laughs> but they didn't know what we know, so we've got to give them some kind of latitude here. But I want to picture Jesus maybe looking over his shoulder back at the disciples, totally calm, confident, assured, look on his face, saying, yeah, I am sure, let's go. And they head down to Samaria. And he ministers there in a couple different contexts. Now, if you look at the map, he actually didn't stay on that way, the patriarchs. 
He actually jags off to the east and picks up the way of the Jordan. But it's not to avoid Samaria. He's had a divine appointment in Samaria. And as best I can tell, the reason he heads to the other route after Samaria is that God the Father has divine appointments for him along the way of the Jordan. One of which we learned about, I think just maybe a month ago, and that was meeting Zacchaeus in Jericho. Once he's in Jericho in Luke 19, he's very close to Jerusalem, isn't he? Just a little bit of a walk up, again, several hours, not a little bit. And then we enter into that final week, which leads, of course, to the crucifixion and the resurrection. So what are some takeaways from this this journey that Jesus makes in the Gospel of Luke? I think one of the big ones is Jesus did not allow himself to be limited by ethnic or cultural boundaries that were set up by the minds and opinions of men, and in some cases men and women both. He got out of his comfort zone. Man, he does that all the time, doesn't he? Pretty much every chapter he's out of what we would call a comfort zone. And he crosses those boundaries that maybe people would have said, this isn't what you should be doing to minister the will of the Father. It's also clear that God the Father has set up divine appointments for him. So with that second application point, you might be a little fuzzy, I would be, thinking, well, obviously Jesus knew the will of the Father, Ron, but I don't have this direct communication. You know, I'm not a member of the Trinity and can communicate with the other members like that. Well, here's my recommendation. Um, If you want to know the will of the Father, especially since we'll finish up Luke in just a couple weeks, when we do that on your own, read the Gospel of John this summer. Because Jesus has a couple dozen great verses that talk about the relation between him and his Father in the Gospel of John. So here's the short version of Gospel of John in that respect. Do you want to see the Father? Then look at Jesus. Do you want to hear the Father's voice? Easy answer. Listen to Jesus. Obey what he says. Do you want to honor the Father? Honor the Son. Let's pray. God, I thank you that we serve